You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. From News E Jacuzzi, a children's news podcast. And I have some jokes for you. What do you get when you drop a pumpkin? Squash! What do you get when you cross a Frankceratops and a lemon? What? A dinosaur! Can I tell you a joke about pizza? Never mind, it's too cheesy. What did the worm say to the compost? I don't know. What did the worm say to the compost? Nice to eat you! Who's the best dressed vegetable in the market? Collard greens. Though, you should see the dress his girlfriend wore. It was radishing. What did the pepper say to the salt? What's shaken? Hello, I am Oliver. And I would like to see an episode of The Simpsons where Homer makes sourdough bread, makes a mistake, and says dough. Those were some hilarious jokes from our friends at Time for Lunch, HRN's podcast for kids. We learned from a young age that food can be pretty funny. Maybe it's the source of your most embarrassing story or your best joke. Eating and imbibing can also be a great compliment to a stand-up show. Some meals take on creative, absurd forms that blur the line between cooking and art. Whether through TV shows or inside jokes shared around the dinner table, laugh along with us as we look at some of the ways food and comedy go hand in hand. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat. Three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. The typical act of eating is centered around aromas and flavors. But for some, food is a source of chaotic and messy comedy. From pies in the face to slipping on bananas... Food has been at the center of some of the most memorable cinematic moments. Vaidehi Kudyadi explores this fascinating history of food as comic relief in cinema. Picture this. You've invited your closest friends to your home for an elaborate dinner party. You spend weeks tweaking your menu, days at the grocery store finding the best produce, and hours toiling away in your kitchen to create the perfect meal. In a comedic tone of events, the meal you poured your heart into has been transformed into a weapon in a fight by your guests. And not just any kind of fight, a food fight. While this scenario seems like an absurd occurrence, films have historically embraced the spectacle of a food fight for comedic relief. But why? That's an interesting question. I mean, why, why are we having food fights as opposed to... I don't know, like throwing books at one another or something like that. Uh, 
I think it's because the the nature of comedy is very much you know, comedy is especially slapstick is very much a kind of embodied thing. That is Dr. Rob Kane, a historian of early 20th century film in America. To satiate my curiosity about the popularity of food fights, banana peels, and pie in movies, I spoke to him about how the tradition of using food for comedic relief began in the first place. When you talk about the earliest use of food as a comedic device, you know, and you mentioned custard pies and banana peels, both of which more or less define our, our, our image of slapstick. There's often been this investment on the part of historians of comedy to identify the first use of a custard pie or the first use of a banana peel. Uh, the Keystone Film Company, which was founded by Max Sennett in 1912, is often seen as a, um, you know, as a, as a central kind of, uh, uh, I guess, well for many of these tropes of slapstick comedy. Uh, the film A Noise of Bombs, in 1913 is often cited as the the first use of a custard pie uh, thrown by Roscoe Fanny Arbuckle into the face of Mabel Normand. But I don't think that this, uh, uh, that's not, I I believe, that's probably not correct. Uh, You can actually find earlier uses of custard pies in... uh, in earlier films, I mean, well, I don't know whether it's a custard pie, but certainly a pie is thrown into someone's face or squashed into someone's face. So these scenes have been somewhat of a mainstay in cinema for a long time. And while food gags have similar comedic effects, they have different histories. One thing I'd note uh, furthermore, in terms of talking about custard pies, banana peels, where they come from and so on and so forth, is that the the banana peel gag differs, I think, from the custard pie gag in actually having its its sources in in history and, and historical experience. The banana peel uh, was a new phenomenon and uh, a new urban danger, let's say, uh, from the mid nineteenth century onward. Bananas were kind of marketed as these kind of self-packaged fruits, right? They're, they're self-wrapped fruits. Uh, and hygiene concerns being what they were in the, uh, in the, you know, in the mid to late 19th century, people would, you know, would simply discard of the, of the wrapping, i.e. the peel, uh, just, you know, straight onto the ground. Uh, and you can, I mean, if you, if you look into this, you, you can actually find uh, you know, a n- number of, uh, like municipal ordinances and so on and so forth, uh, that, are, that are banning, uh, the, uh, like the kind of casual disposal of, of banana peels on the streets because they were seen as, as being dangerous. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's worth noting uh, again that the, 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 as a source of comedy, the banana peel actually has its roots in social reality and in the history of of, of bananas, you know, uh, and the history of uh, of um, you know of uh, uh, I guess fruit consumption uh, in the in the Western world. Something as mundane as a disposal of food waste triggered the creation of comedic punchlines centered around food 
that would last and evolve over decades. If we think of like the the famous food fights in you know in in not that recent but more modern comedies, let's say you're beginning with Animal House uh, in the in the late seventies. There's a clear trajectory there, and I think that the that trajectory is is maybe uh, a, a key film in that respect is the 1927 Hal Roach, Laurel and Hardy film, Battle of the Century. One of the things that typifies Laurel and Hardy's comedy is is one-up personship. Uh, and that then gets applied to, uh, to pie fighting in Battle of the Century, where uh, you know, uh, one person is the recipient of a pie in the face, they then, uh, you know, have their revenge with another pie in the face. And then, you know, with this kind of one-upmanship standard, it just starts to snowball and snowball and snowball until by the end of Battle of the Century, it was a really like maybe the classic custard pie movie. Uh, you, you have dozens of people on the city street all throwing pies at one another. Uh, again, you know, I, I think that, you know, th- this is a film that, that already, that, that, that is taking a knowing engagement with the custard pie gag and just kind of accentuating it a hundredfold, right? So this is, this is for, for this, for this comedy, the custard pie is already a cliche gag and they're just, they're just sending it over the edge. Whether you find food fights hilarious or you think they're visceral and cringy, they are nothing new. And they're not going anywhere. As simple as food gags may seem to be, they continue to climb new levels of popularity in movies across the globe. And who knows, the next great food gag may be just around the corner. The bright colors and varied textures of food, from banana peels to cream pies, make it a great source of visual humor. You first devour your food with your eyes. But what if what you're seeing and what you're tasting don't match up? Imagine scrolling Instagram or TikTok and pausing for a random item like a microwave. Then a knife comes out of nowhere to cut it, revealing colorful layers of a cake. Giselle Medina dives deeper into the internet trend that worked its way to become a game show series on Netflix. I remember watching on Instagram how someone had this like kettle and I thought it was an actual kettle, but it was actually cake. And so they cut the kettle and then they cut the outlet that the cake was plugged into, like the wire that the cake was plugged into. And I just couldn't really wrap my head around it because it looked so real. So I was like, what the heck? Like it's cake? <laughs> that was fellow HRN intern Kiara Thomas describing the deception behind imposter cakes. I had no choice but to look up this video. With a quick Google search of quote-unquote kettle imposter cake, I found the original video on TikTok and it has 2.2 million likes. This social media trend peaked during the summer of 2020 and was all over Instagram and TikTok. Bakers took the challenge with this newfound free time to try to fool viewers with items that were really cake. Right now, hashtag everything is cake has around 715 million views on TikTok. The last time I was fooled by realistic cakes was when I binged the Is It Cake Netflix series back in March, a bake show that was inspired by the social media trend. 
Nine cake artists would take eight hours to make their creations and compete to fool judges into believing their insanely realistic creations aren't cake. The prize is up to $10,000 per episode and $50,000 at the end of the competition. HRN intern Sophie Telkov Berko loved the show and can only describe it to have a bizarre, almost like comedic element to it that attracts people. Um, and it's also just like very unlike anything I've ever seen in food television. It's just like so random, but works so well because it's so artistic. And I think something else why people love it, I think the judging element is really fun. Like my favorite part of every episode is getting to guess which one is cake and which one is real. So I think that sort of like game show element really draws people in. I will admit, throughout the eight episodes, I don't think I guessed a single challenge right. But how does this game show combine comedy and food? Host Mikey Day was a big factor. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's part of the SNL cast. The host was just like super out there and just like constantly doing really weird things and saying weird things. And just the aspect of having like three super random celebrity guests who often like had nothing, had no knowledge of baking or any knowledge of cakes or, and then they were the ones judging and deciding like if it's cake or not. Like that to me felt very comedic. I was like, this is so random. Picture this, five pillars on a stage, each with identical items. One being the cake. From a few feet away and strobing lights, judges had to guess in under 30 seconds which item was the cake. There was an anxiety-inducing buzzer that would buzz faster once the timer was up. The three judges would squeal and then stress pick an object. But for nine-year-old Aaliyah Kelly, an avid Bake Show watcher, the craziest episode was... The last episode was actually an illusion. It, it got me so confused. My brain hurt. Because that was so confusing when they had no cakes on the pillars, but it was actually the pillars that were the cake. But what has us so hooked by imposter cakes? For Kiara, it's... Definitely love and hate. I love like how cool and realistic it is, but I hate that I can't get it right. Like, why can't I get it right? Like, it's, it's cake. Like, the detailing's like perfect. The shading, the colors, the shapes. It just stresses me out. And honestly, it's why I have trust issues. I couldn't agree more with Kiara. There's a thrill in trying to figure out the imposter cake. And is it cake did just that, but with an insane amount of chaos and comedy involved. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. I'm Chava Perivan co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, 
through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Here at HRN, we take food seriously. But sometimes it's important to lighten up, to play with food the way kids do. What culinary experiments would you pursue if you weren't focused on a tasty outcome? Anna Canny explores the humor of absurd food creations. Back in February, food writer Dennis Lee was headed to a Super Bowl party. It was hosted by a former co-worker, and he needed a last-minute offering for the snack table. So, he grabbed his latest baking creation. Brought him half the loaf because he's a very talented baker. And I'd been telling him, you know, here, I'm learning how to bake bread. I wanted to ask him some questions, but try this. When his coworker took a bite, he started laughing. But he wasn't making fun of Dennis's baking skills. Dennis had replaced all the water in the recipe with Gatorade. And it's on the counter during the game. And then little by little, I hear people just going, what is that? Because <laughs> it's this half a loaf of bread that's like kind of purple. And then people started taking bites of it and they all started shouting and they were going like, I can taste it. I can taste it. The loaf caused a small commotion in the kitchen. Laughter erupted each time someone came to try it. Some people even started brainstorming new recipes to complement it. Maybe the Gatorade's artificial grape flavor would enhance a PB&J. To make things even funnier, the party guests were mostly friends from Dennis's old restaurant days, pizza makers and professional chefs. During his first decade as a food writer, Dennis was steeped in the culture of fine dining. But after a few years, he got tired of it, so he had an idea. I decided, well, you know what, I'm really sick of this. I'm going to see what happens if I decide to drive my career off a cliff. And let me start doing the dumbest stuff I can think of, like the worst stuff I can think of with food, and just like make fun of the whole thing. It didn't ruin his writing career. He's currently a staff writer for The Takeout. Their slogan is, food is delicious. But after work hours... Dennis has a different motto. Food is stupid. That's the name of his award-winning weekly blog and newsletter. It's a place for humor. He refers to his subscribers, and himself, as clowns. And his goal there, in his own words, is to ruin food for everybody. Each week, he dreams up a disgusting, albeit creative, new recipe. I tried to get um, drunk off of putting alcohol into my humidifier. I wanted to see if that would work. I made empanadas out of Play-Doh, like actual Play-Doh, and I almost threw up. I made cornbread out of kitty litter, (laughs) and this kitty litter is corn-based, so I just decided, you know, what the hell. I carbonated raw fish with a soda stream, and that was pretty fun. Most recent thing I did was I made um, hot and sour soup, but I used Sour Patch Kids for the sour part, so it was hot and sour Patch Kids soup. 
I'll come up with an idea, and if I don't laugh while I say the words out loud, then I, it's probably not worth writing about. Dennis is not a trained humor writer or comedian. His sense of humor is fueled by pure ridiculousness. I think everything is absurd, you know? I think the, the original reason why I started being silly with food was just because, like, I was like, why does everybody take this so seriously? I've been to fine dining restaurants. I know the chefs. Well, I know people who make food, and I know people who write about it. But as soon as you take that smile off your face while you're doing it, it becomes something completely different. Some people see his culinary experiments as nihilistic. But Dennis's intentions are actually a lot more pure than that. Through humor, he hopes to rekindle our earliest fascination with food. You talk to a little kid and ask them to make something in the kitchen, and it's probably going to be along the lines of what I do. You know, like, who would put candy in a traditional Chinese takeout dish? Like, that doesn't make any sense in any, in any form except to maybe a kid. I, I'm hoping to kind of appeal to people's, like, childish sense of wonder, too. In a way that's like also food related and just reminds you to just, you know, laugh about the food you're eating. Because honestly, if you think about what you ate today, was it all good? It's true. Most dining experiences are not high class. On the morning of our interview, Dennis ate leftover White Castle for breakfast. And I'm sure you've eaten some less than glamorous meals this week, too. But at least if they can't be glamorous, they can be hilarious. At some gatherings, the food itself may be a source of levity. But coming together around a table also presents an excellent occasion for telling jokes to a captive audience. This was the M.O. of Bernie Workman, a lifelong New Yorker who lived to 97. Arthie Menon caught up with his granddaughter Katie and her husband to talk about Grandpa Bernie's unique combination of food and comedy on My Family Recipe. Let's take a listen. I was lucky enough to know Grandpa Bernie Workman for four years after marrying his granddaughter. My fondest memory of Bernie was when Katie and I would go out there on Sunday nights and have dinner at the Chinese food restaurant near his apartment. And he loved to tell stories, and he would go really long and detailed into jokes. Bernie would collect a spoonful of soup while he was telling the story and he would go on and on raising the spoon to his mouth as if he was going to finally take the spoonful into his mouth but he would have one more line to say and so the spoon would never get slurped and it would go up and down as he would tell the story and this would go on for several minutes until you know the, the punchline was finally delivered and then he would look at Katie and I and wait for our reaction to the, uh, to the joke. And after we laughed, Bernie would take a sip of his soup and scrunch his face as if to say, you know, why is my soup so cold? Um, and that in and of itself had Katie and I laughing over and over again. And Bernie, th <laughs> Bernie thought we were laughing at his jokes only, but we were also laughing at the fact that his soup would go cold because he'd wait so long to, to eat it while he was telling his stories. Katie, you yourself have remarked how funny it was that Bernie's slow eating habits seem to have cemented themselves in your entire family's memory. Was this kind of representative of a certain 
let's call it savoring approach that he had to life. I think is representative of the fact that he really liked talking. <laughs> I really think that he just, especially, you know, in the later years when he lived by himself, when he had an audience, that, that food took a back seat at that point. So in a weird way, it was a little bit of the opposite of savoring. It was more like, mm -hmm. I have the platform and you people have your mouths full and now I'm going to go redhead. <laughs> I love that. He seized the moment. Yes, he definitely did. If Shakespeare taught us that the world is but a stage, Grandpa Bernie Workman teaches us that the dinner table is but an open mic. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Isaac Furman, Vaidehi Kudyadi, Giselle Medina, Anna Canny, and Sarah Mathis. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>